0: Our scripture lesson tonight that we'll share together is in the middle uh, portion of a story uh, about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's share in God's good word together. At the break of day, the angels pushed Lot to get going. Hurry, get your wife and two daughters out of here before it's too late and you're caught in the punishment of the city. Lot was dragging his feet The men grabbed Lot's arm and the arms of his wife and daughters. God was so merciful to them and dragged them to safety outside the city. When they had them outside, Lot was told, Now run for your life. Don't look back. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. We're starting this series called FOMO. It's the fear of missing out. Will you say that with me? Fear of missing out. Uh, And it happens to all of us. It's always happened in the world, but it is becoming a pandemic. Just everywhere, largely because of social media. So I want to show you the definition real quick. It's kind of been floating around now. The fear of missing out. It's a quality possessed by an anxious person who must always be privileged, insider, or part of the action. uh, Feeling of being in one place, yet plagued by the overwhelming suspicion that something even better is going on somewhere else. Uh, It's the insecurity that friends and family and colleagues are intentionally leaving you out of some kind of fun or important activities, uh, usually compensated by constant contact and gossiping y'all ever been out on vacation with your family and somebody's phone goes off it's like oh i got to get out of here There's something better right down here or maybe you're at dinner uh, with a friend that you've wanted to see for a long time and they're checking their phone and checking their phone and checking their phone and checking their phone and, their phone and you're like well are we meeting or we we not meeting or what's going on Brene Brown says that the fear of missing out is what happens when scarcity slams into shame. It lures us out of our integrity with whispers about what we could or should be doing instead of what we are doing. FOMO's favorite weapon is comparison. It kills gratitude and it replaces it with not enough. And we answer FOMO's call by saying yes when we really mean no. We want to say no, but we say yes because we're afraid we're going to miss out. And we're missing out on our own lives every time we say yes because we're afraid of missing out. So we don't say no, but we are saying no to something. We're saying no to our own life, to the life that God has for us. You can't say yes to everything. You have to say no to something. And I was studying up on this as we, our family, uh, we have a tradition where we go down along the Redneck Riviera every year. My mom and my aunts and uncles and cousins and just the whole family, we all get together. And, and I was studying up on this and wondering, you know, what does FOMO look like? If you were to kind of, you know, encapsulate it in a, in a picture, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, uh, I, I think it might look like this. These folks were right to my right. And uh, I was like, hey, Noah, take their picture. He's like, no, Dad, I don't want to. I'm like, no, really, take their picture. Can you imagine driving? And I don't know these people. That's not. I mean, I don't know them. But we were at the beach. Can you imagine driving? People from Illinois and Michigan and Oklahoma and Texas. And you, you drive 14 hours over and over and over to get all the way to the beach. And you get your chair. And you, you, know, you pay your money. And you slept down to the beach. And you sit down. And you put your feet in the water. And you get out your phone. Because that's what you do. Because you might be missing out on some important, crucial thing that the world could not live if you did not know in that moment. That seems crazy to me. But, you know, I, I kind of understand it. And the thing is, you, you might say, well, Mark, you know, don't be picking on people. That, you know, that's just mean. Don't pick on people to, you know, watch their phones at the beach. That's no big deal. I mean, what do you care? Well, that's fine. Until I'm sitting behind you in the movie theater. And then I do care. Right? Because you're, you're halfway through the movie. And you hear this. Bloop, bloop, bloop. And all of a sudden. The whole row in front of you. Is this big bright light. And you can't even see the screen. Because everybody's checking their phones. Because it's a long movie. Or there was a thunderstorm in Oklahoma. And everybody's phone goes off. And it's all lit up. And now you can't even be at the movie. Does, have any of you all had this happen to you? Now, some of you are looking at me like, that's me. Don't, don't, don't call me out. Yeah, it happens. It happens. You see, it's a new problem, particularly for teens and tweens and young adults. I'm told, research is saying, John Grohl says this, that teens and adults text now while driving because the possibility of a social connection is more important than their own lives. And you think about that. They're willing to risk their own lives because somebody might want to talk to them on their phone. They interrupt one call to take another, even when they don't know who's on the other line. And if we're fair, even old people used to do that before caller ID. You just didn't know who it was. Hold on a minute. They check their Twitter stream while on a date because something more interesting or entertaining might just be happening. And and younger people would say, well, it's not an interruption, it's connection. But, But we have to wait a minute and say, well, is it really connection? Or is it just the potential for a different kind of connection than you already have? And you won't know till you check. So this FOMO addiction, if you will, is this fear of missing out on something or someone more interesting, exciting, or better than what we're currently doing. And it is an impulse control problem. And that's as old as the Bible, as old as time. That's your first blank there. It's an impulse control issue, friends. And, and it's been around since Genesis. And, and, and I think the, the story in Genesis 19 uh, is sort of the origination of FOMO, if you will. Um, and and it, it starts with Lot. But before we hop into the story, I, I want to say this, this. is something that I, that I see. And that is that comparing our real selves to the idealized selves of others on social media makes us miserable. And I just want to beg you to stop that. Because you can be having a great, wonderful, fine day. You can play with the kids or play with the dog in the backyard... ...and go to the pool, have a great day... ...but then you accidentally look at your phone... ...and there's somebody having a better day than you. And now you're miserable. Now you're miserable. Uh, There was a, a New York Times article that interviewed a woman... ...and she said that she felt fine about her life. She was 28 until she opened Facebook. And then she says, then I'm thinking, I'm 28 with three roommates... And, oh, it looks like you have a precious baby and a mortgage. Ooh, and then I just want to die. That's her quote. That she's doing absolutely fine as a single, you know, 28-year-old until she sees this, and then then she's suicidal. Now, listen to what she says. She says, on those occasions, her knee-jerk reaction is often to go out and do something really cool and to upload it to make her feel better so that she can generate FOMO in the other lady. So you got the young mom with the baby and the mortgage and the husband who was really happy. She puts it on Facebook. The young single woman with with the roommates, she feels horrible. And the only way she knows how to compensate for that is to go out and show how great it is to be single. She posts that. And now the woman who was originally happy is miserable, and she's miserable too. And it's just a cycle of being miserable. Comparison will do that to your soul. So I want to just invite us to consider tonight, we might just, we might just stop. We, we might just put down our phones and enjoy um, the people around us. Neighbors, friends, family, children. So let's look at this story of Lot and how this goes down. First of all, I, just, I, I feel like I, I need to say this. It's pretty obvious, but oftentimes when we get to the Bible and we see people, we think, oh, well, they must be awesome. No, Lot is not a great guy. He, he's just not. Lot... Lot is not even a good guy, really. And so Genesis 13 begins this story. This is sort of the prequel to the story. Uh, Lot and Abraham are connected. uh, And Abraham says to Lot, uh, Let there be no strife between you and me. They've been arguing about their herds, uh, between your herders and my herders, for we're kindred, we're we're family. And it's not the whole land before you, so separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go right. And if you take the right uh, hand, then I'll go to the left. And so, so Abraham is just being you know, magnanimous, just laying it out there, Lot, whatever you want to do. So Lot looks about him, and he saw the plain of the Jordan, this huge expanse of land south of the Galilee down by the, what's now the Dead Sea. It was well watered everywhere like the Garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the story we're about to get to. So Lot chooses for himself the best, right? I mean, Abraham says, pick what you want, and Lot's like, you're a sucker, I'm taking the good stuff. So he, he looks at this huge plain uh, with mountains on either side. And he just he comes and he gets this. And so Lot journeys eastward. And then they were separated from each other. So Lot goes on with his herds. And Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the sides of the plain and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked, though. Great sinners against the Lord. Now I want to show you what Lot would have chosen um, in, in, the, in the beginning. And so... Uh, So Lot is living in the place of his own choosing, and this is what he chooses. Uh, uh, When we go to Israel in June, we'll stop by this place. Beautiful streams, flowing water, uh, really green, really lush. You can grow anything there, lots of fishing. I mean, this is is what it looks like in northern Israel. It's beautiful all up and down the Galilee where Jesus lived as a boy uh, and began his ministry. But then, if you go south... You can see that you're in a mountain range here and, and there's this sort of this rift valley and then the Dead Sea. And then on the other side, another set of mountain ranges. It's really hard to see because it's always hazy because it's so hot and the, and the haze comes up off the sea. Um, so what happened was this. Something huge happened. Some ecological disaster happened to make it so different now. Uh, and what scholars believe is that basically uh, there's a huge geological rift that goes up and down uh, right along the Jordan. And so uh, what happens, and, and I'll remind you, this is a very ancient text. This, this is an oral tradition, handed down, handed down, handed down, handed down. And there was this huge, basically, ecological disaster where the, the plates shift, lava shoots up out of the ground, gases that will kill you or, you know, just horrible stuff all happens. And all that story gets woven into Abraham's story because they have to figure out, well, what happened? It used to be like this and now it's like that. How do you explain that? And so the tribal people of Israel, where they're, I mean, they're not even settled, right? I mean, these are tribal, moving around people. They've got to figure out, well, how do we explain, you know, who we are to our children? And so you have this geological rift, this extensive sulfur, petrochemical springs everywhere, and this disaster is woven into this story. And so the story goes like this. Basically, two angels arrive um, at Sodom in Genesis 19. And Lot was sitting in the gateway of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed down with his face to the ground. He, he realizes these are angels, and he says, Please, my lords, turn aside to your servants' house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you can rise early and go on your way. And they said, No. no we'll spend the night in the, in the square, out in the street. Uh, but he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. And so that's, that's how... Uh, The story begins, but it it goes on. In in 4 and 5, it says this. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Now, this is where it gets really difficult. Because no, in Hebrew, uh, is to have sex with. And it's not just to have sex with, it's to gang rape these guys. That's what they're talking about. That whoever shows up on the door and beats on the door, whoever's in there, they want to give them to them so they can gang rape them. That's what the story's saying. It's a very difficult story. And, And what follows is even more disturbing. You see, Genesis 19 shows the collective character of Sodom and sexual violence against every man and every woman in the area. It's not about homosexuality as we think of it today. It's not about individuals. It's not about people getting married. It's not about any of that, that some people would say it's about. It's about violence. It's about sexual violence and, and, and just how depraved the entire character of that city was collectively as a society. And so, so Lot uh, has this very strong understanding of what's known as Oriental or Middle Eastern hospitality, where it was your duty, your right to make sure that whoever came to you was well taken care of, that you were now their protector if they showed up in your home. And he was trying to live that out. And, and, and he was perhaps afraid of what the other people would think if he didn't do that well. And so the scripture says this, Lot went out uh, to the door to the men and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man. They're virgins. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, friends, you, you, you get the gravity of that story. That There's no way in our modern minds, to to rectify, to make that right. There's something really bad wrong between Lot and his daughters where he would offer them up rather than these two strangers who had just come in, other than that was the culture of the day. It was a, a very masculine culture, and women were property. And he was simply falling out the cultural mores of his day. It doesn't make it right. And that'll have consequences down the story. But they replied, the angels did, stand back, and they said, this fellow came here as an alien, and he would play the judge now. We will deal worse with you than with them. And then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and came near the door to break it down. But the men inside reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the door of the house, both small and great. And so they were unable to find the door. And so that's how uh, the story goes. Then the men said to Lot, have you, anyone else here, son-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place? For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become, a great, has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his son-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, Get up, get out of this place. The Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws only to be jesting. They thought it a joke. Now, you see, friends, that... Lot's daughters were betrothed, and yet Lot makes an unbelievable move with them. And it was in that culture that if you were to have sex with someone who was betrothed, that was a death sentence. And so you have this very strange, very odd life and death situation all around Lot's house with his daughters, with these men, with the mob, with the angels. And so the angels' move is to blind everyone. Uh, except for Lot and his household, so that they can escape and get away. And and they do. The angels save Lot anyway. It's really remarkable. So when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Get up. Get up and take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or else you'll be consumed in the punishment of the city. But Lot lingered. Can you imagine this? He's done all this. They're ready to go, and he's still dragging his feet. He lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and they left him outside the city. And when they had brought them outside, they said, flee for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the hills or else you will be consumed. Because here's the thing about the plain. The plain is between the two um, tectonic plates that are shifting. And so right where they are, that's where all the lava and gases and petrochemicals are going to shoot up and kill them if they don't get off the plain. And so the angel's like, you got to get out of here because this is what's about to happen. You have to leave right now. And Lot's like, well, I don't know. I don't know. I kind of like my life as it is. So Lot says to them, oh, no, my lords, your servant has found favor with you, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot flee to the hills, for the fear of disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, that city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? My life will be saved. And so that they say, okay. They said to him, very well, I grant you this favor too. And I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Now that's interesting. God Almighty is holding back all of heaven and earth to save this so-and-so lot. And he might. You ever wonder what the Lord is sparing you from? He's working heaven and earth to try to be there for you too. He says, hurry, escape, for there I can do nothing until you arrive there. And therefore the city was called Zoar. and the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities, what grew on the ground. It was no longer like I had shown you just a few moments ago where it was lush and beautiful and green and rivers and all that. No, it was desolate, and Lot's wife behind him. She doesn't heed the warning. She looks back and she becomes a pillar of salt. Now, some people believe that they, they say that it's a pillar of salt because even in that region today, there are sort of these weird salt um, things that look like people. They're about, you know, five, six feet tall and they just sort of appear out on the plain. And so uh, some people think that's where that was. Other people think that the chemicals got her and, you know, she's going, is like, whoop, and, and that was it. Uh, we don't know. All we know is that when you try to continue to go back to what used to work but isn't going to work, and God's giving you a warning, don't go back. Don't go back. Keep moving forward. Don't drag your feet. And encourage your whole family to move with you. So Lot is negotiating through the midst of all this disaster. His wife looks back, and it doesn't end well for her. And then there's this really sort of almost throwaway line at the end of the story that I think we should take seriously. And that is this, that Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. You know, they had split up the land, Lot and Abraham. And, and so he goes. He looks down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to be south of where he is. And towards all the land of the plain. And he sees all the smoke of the land going up like the smoke of a furnace. And so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the plain, God remembered Abraham. And he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had settled. Now, some people a lot smarter than me have made this connection that God remembered Abraham. God remembered his promise to Abraham. And and, and Andy's preached about this many a time that God's Abraham story is you go where I send you and I'll bless you, I'll keep you, I'll help you. You'll be a father of many nations. And, And even nasty old souls like Lot, I'll take care of him too. And God remembered His covenant. God remembered His own character and what He had said to Abraham, and to all of His family. And it makes me wonder about intercession. We don't talk a lot about intercessory prayer, but you know, you wonder. Abraham says, "Hey, don't forget my my, my buddy Lot. Don't forget my family." And God goes, "Okay. Okay. I mean, if there's anybody you want God to forget, it's Lot. I mean, right, I mean, there's no real reason to keep him around. But." Um, in God's love, God's compassion, God's character? He does. He does. You see, this thing of the, the fear of missing out, I mean, Lot's wife looking back and wanting to you know, not leave her friends or not do this or not do that or whatever it is, it ends in disastrous consequences, friends. It, it does. When you compare yourself to others, when you try to live like everybody else lives. You see, the, thing, the choice was Lot's all along. He could have chosen any of the land. Abraham says, choose what you want and I'll go the other way. And he chooses Sodom. That's his choice. And over time, that's the thing about who we live with and how we live with. Uh, if we're not careful, the more we're there. It's not just that we influence them, that they come to live in us. And you could tell by Lot's reactions that there was a lot of problems around his character. He was a lot more concerned about what the angels wanted or about what his neighbors wanted or about what the crowd wanted than of his own daughters. And that leads to some serious issues later. So the scripture says this, Now Lot went up to, out of Zoar and settled in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar, even that's where he had chosen again. So he lived in a cave with his two girls. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is not a man on earth. To come into us after the manner of all the world. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him so that we may preserve offspring through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in, and she lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she rose. On the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Look, I lay last night with my father, let's make him drink wine again. Uh, tonight, and then you go in and lie with them so that we may persevere offspring through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger one rose, lay with them, and he did not know when she'd lay down or when she rose. Thus both daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. Their firstborn bore a son and named him Moab. He is the ancestor of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son named him ben He is the ancestor of the Ammonites to this day. Now what are you going to do with that? Every culture in the world Pretty much bar none has a strict code against incest, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, I mean you name it that you can't do that, and yet, in our text tonight, it just reads on out because the fear of missing out there wasn't another man they had seen all the other men of the plane wiped out lot and his girls were the ones who had escaped, and so she was afraid. In that culture, without offspring, you were nothing. Because when we get afraid, when we hear ourselves say things like, well, I had to, or I have to, or the only way out is, friends, that's when we hit our knees. And we say, God, I don't see another way out. You show me your way out. Because when we get to that point where we don't see another way and we're about ready to do something really, really dangerous or hurtful or disastrous to ourselves or to others. We need God. You see, the daughter decides there's no other way. In her own mind, and what she'd been through, there's no other way. And what her, their, her dad had put them through, or almost put them through, you can see how this would play out this way. And fear drives us to tragic conclusions and actions. We're afraid we're going to get fired, and so we do something that's a little sketchy. Uh, we're afraid that you know, our son or daughter might do this, and so we, you know, we make some moves uh, to you know, manipulate that just the way we want it. We, we start to move our morality or we shift what's okay because we feel like we have to. You ever been in those places where you just felt like you had to? That's a dangerous place to be. And it ends tragically, friends. Now, some scholars will tell you that the Moabites and the Ammonites are neighbors and and we're not always friendly with the Israelites. And so some people will say that story is just a jab at the Moabites and the Ammonites. But there's another part of that story that I think is really interesting. And that is that God's always at work, even in the worst, gross, most disturbing things you can think of. You know, because that's, think about the cross, the worst form of torture the, the world has ever known, and now it's our symbol of hope. And in this story, God works a future miracle out of a tragedy. He does. Any of you all uh, happen to know the story of Ruth? The whole book in the Bible. Ruth, friends, was a Moabite. Let that sink in for a moment. Ruth was a Moabite, which makes Lot's daughter's son, Lot and his daughter's boy, the ancestor of, of both King David and Jesus, the Messiah of the world. That's our Savior's lineage. That's our ancestry. And we have to make really sure that we are not in a, a culture that's so sexualized that we think incest is okay. No, that's not what that story is about. Any more than the stories about homosexuality and Sodom. It's not about that either. It is about the character of God versus the character of people who only want what they want when they want it, violently or otherwise, and they're willing to take it. And God says, I'm going to save Lot because that's my character. I'm going to do it on the bequest and the prayers of Abraham. And not only that, this horrible thing where they could find no way out and it looked horrible from every aspect. If you were Jewish, if you were otherwise, it looked horrible. And yet that is where Jesus is born, out of that line." Out of Ruth the Moabite. And you and I are here today, partly because of that horrible Genesis 19 story. And yet, God can do something amazing with all of that pain, with all of that grief, with all of that just messed up sexuality that can't seem to come out right. God is there too. Never giving up on us. Never giving up on his people. And never giving up on the dream of the salvation of the entire world. That he brings in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says things like this. Pray for your enemies. And bless those who persecute you. Bless them. Do not curse them. you never know what God's up to. So. What in the world are you supposed to do with this? Sermon tonight. What action step could you possibly take? Well I want to play a little game with you this week. I hope you'll be brave and share it with us. uh, Personally. Uh, I'm hesitant to tell you to put it on Facebook after the sermon. But um, anyway, I would like for you to count how many times you check your phone for texts, status updates, email, Pokemon, whatever it is. I'd like for you to track that just for one day, a 24-hour period, and just see, what is that? I, I have a mentor that tells me I should do that three times a day, at 9, and at 2, and at 5.30. And then you take the next 30 minutes to an hour to reply to all those, and now you know you're going to spend three hours on your phone a day uh, doing correspondence and that sort of thing that, quite frankly, 10 years ago, none of us did. We didn't spend the same kind of time that way. But if you're not careful, that three hours might be 10 hours or more. So I I invite you to... Is anybody... I'm, I'm going to just go out there. Is there anybody here who's willing to take that challenge just to count how many times you check your phone in a 24-hour period? Anybody? Come on, raise your hands. Try it. Just let me know privately. You know, I know some of you be like, 89 times. Right? You might be surprised. You might be surprised. So I want you to count how many times. And then, regardless of what the number is, I think it would be really healthy to set a family limit or time when your phones are either checked in, like at dinner, um, or just flipped over so you don't see them, hear them. It's all bright. Now, I would love to tell you that I have this down, but i don't it 's really, really difficult for me as a pastor and it 's getting harder all the time because what i've found, and this will be a shocker to you is not everybody in our church has the same sleep pattern and since i 'm the founding pastor and I haven 't ever changed my phone, I get texts from people who are early morning people i 'll get a text at five thirty and somebody they 're up and they say, "Hey, Pastor Mark, I really want you to pray for you know this thing or this." My brother's having a surgery, or my son's having this, or, you know, could you pray for me, or I'm struggling about that? And uh, Chantel's like, who is that? I'm like, hold on. And, and, and then I look, and, and then I go back to sleep, because I'm not up at 530. And then, you know, we'll go to bed. Uh, we go, we're late. I mean, we'll go to bed at like midnight, and I'll get to sleep. And the phone will go off at, at 1 or 2 from the night owl people. And they'll say, hey, Pastor Mark, I'm going to have surgery in the morning. You know, can you, can you pray for me? Or, you know, I was thinking about this. Or, hey, here's a cool story. You know, here's a meme for your sermon series. Whatever it is, well-meaning. I mean, it's not, none of it's bad. But I'm, I can't get any sleep. Because I'm just, you know, reading on my phone. So, I, I just wanted to let you know, I feel you. I know, I know what that is. Because I try to keep my phone on for, you know, real emergencies when people are dying. And they won't need their pastor there. So I try to do it. But like i got to tell you, I'm, I'm getting kind of tempted to turn it off so I can live. So I, so I can, you know, live. And not text all of you all, I'm dying, you know, because I'm not sleeping. Does it make sense? So I'll count mine if you count yours. And we'll see how we do. Deal? And we won't have a fear of missing out. And in and, and two weeks, I'll talk to you about the joy of missing out and the benefits of solitude and silence.